Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join Executive Pastor Dr. Tucker York. invite you now to turn in your Bible to Revelation chapter 6. We're going to read all of chapter 6 and the latter part of chapter 7. Now, as many of you are likely aware, Revelation is a notoriously difficult book to interpret, one of the most difficult in all of Scripture. And uh, there are approaches to interpretation that are filled with pitfalls, one of which is to try to interpret every detail in a very literal manner and trying to predict the timing of, of the revelation. I would propose that a much better approach to the book of Revelation is to understand and seek to understand the broader themes to identify the, the many, many references from the Old Testament and even some from the New Testament. They give us insight into the mind and heart of God who seeks to fulfill the final consummation of his redemptive plan for his people. In our text this evening, we encounter the the seven seals that only the Lamb is worthy to open. And these seals serve as symbols to express God's wrath upon the wicked who have spoiled his good creation and persecute his bride the church. These signs and symbols give us insights into the persecution and the trials that believers of all ages will likely encounter. But here we also see the the vision cast of the great host of heaven, the redeemed people who gather from all the nations of the earth. And we also see here the great comfort and hope, the final resting place that awaits the people of God when they take up refuge, away from the sorrows of this sad world. For those who have ears to hear, listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's read in Revelation 6. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals. And I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come! And I looked, and behold, a white horse. And its rider had a bow And a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and a conquest. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, and out came another horse, bright red. His rider was permitted to take peace from the earth, so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse and his rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. 
when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree shed its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and and who can stand? And then if you would forward over to verse 9 in chapter 7. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God, and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence." They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. This is God's word. Father, this evening, I would ask that the words of my mouth that the meditations of each of our hearts might be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. In the months preceding the onset of the COVID pandemic, my wife and I fought one of the fiercest battles we ever had to fight, not between each other. As my wife was gathering water from our fridge water dispenser, something fell out. She realized it was a roach. She sprayed and discovered that an entire nest had developed up in there. 
We found little baby roaches near our coffee maker. We sprayed and we set out traps, but still kept finding evidence of these little critters until it became clear we had an infestation in our kitchen. This meant war. We did our research. We realized we had to put our kitchen on lockdown to cut off the food and water supply and invest in a much stronger liquid roach bait. We didn't run our dishwasher for weeks, washing our dishes by hand and drying them very carefully to cut off the water supply. We cleaned and dried our coffee maker every day. We slept, we swept and cleaned our floor and countertops meticulously every day, which is not easy when you have six kids still at home. But after a month or two, we went several weeks without any evidence of the little pest. But we, to make extra doubly sure, we kept going for a few more weeks just to make sure they were all gone. And sometime in February, we declared V-Day, the extermination was complete. And thankfully, since then, we have no, had no other roach problems ever since. Well, this season of war in our kitchen required my wife and I to be vigilant, to be merciless to rid our home of these little pests. They suffered our unmitigated wrath, and they found no refuge in our home. In our passage tonight, we find a breathtaking view and vantage point of the way God deals with a fallen humanity to rid his earth of rebels and to redeem the righteous. In the two chapters before us, we see that the Lamb is able to open the first six of seven seals which reveal God's wrath on rebels. God's redemption for the rescued, and God's refuge for the righteous. Chapter 6 is a chapter filled with God's wrath poured upon his rebels. The Lamb alone who is worthy to open the seal, and a voice of one of the living creatures makes the sound of thunder an indicator throughout Scripture of God's holy presence as first seen at Mount Sinai. What proceeds is the appearance of four different colored horses, each with its own rider, each of whom introduce some aspect of God's judgment upon sin. The first to appear is a white horse whose rider bears a bow and is given a crown and is given dominion to conquer. Now, there are those who suggest that this first writer is the glorified Christ due to the likeness with chapter 19 when it is very evident that it is the glorified Christ who appears on a white horse. However, the fact that this writer is grouped with the other three, bears a bow and not a sword, in the context of the passage would suggest to me at least that this first writer represents the kings and the rulers of earth, her used under God's sovereign prerogative to bring about war and oppression and suffering and misery in this fallen world. Because men have rejected God as king, 
We must live in this life with imperfect, even sometimes abusive kings and rulers. The second to appear is a red horse whose rider is granted to take peace from the earth and by which men, people, will slay one another. Why is it that people start wars and commit atrocious acts of murder? The root is our sinful, selfish, covetous, greedy hearts. When men act out of prejudice and fear and sinful anger to strike one another, ever since the first murder of Cain against his righteous brother Abel, men have unjustly killed one another with impunity, disregarding the preciousness of life and making full assault on the image of God implanted upon man. The third rider, the third horse, is black in color and whose rider bears scales, representing God's judgment upon the economies of the earth, bringing woe and scarcity. A voice cries out, declaring that a quart of wheat would sell for a laborer's full day's wage. Even barley, cheap grain, is excessive in cost in that day. But notice the restraint upon oil and wine in those days. Only the rich were privileged to consume much oil and wine. This seems to indicate that in this judgment, the poor suffer the most from economic turmoil and sadly suffer under the policies and practices of the rich and powerful who inflict it upon those who can least afford it. And those spared for a time, the unrighteous rich in the end will get their just desserts. But then the fourth seal is opened and appears a pale horse, whose rider is named Death, and following behind him is Hades. They are given dominion by which one-fourth of the earth will perish by the sword, the famine, pestilence, and wild beast. These judgments are severe. But so severe is the wrath of God upon sinful rebellion. God is just. And he will not permit his holiness to be assaulted, his good creation to be spoiled, or his people to be abused without recompense. And people often question whether or not these judgments are they for today or for, or for the future. And it's my view that these judgments largely span the length and breadth of human history, but are moving towards the great climax as we anticipate the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The opening of the fifth and the sixth seal, I believe, confirm that conclusion. After the appearing of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, there's a pause in God's judgments to hear the righteous who were slain for the word of God and for the witness and the righteous cry out to their sovereign Lord, asking how long before God will enact justice and avenge their blood. The blood of the martyrs testifies to their great faithfulness and sacrifice before God and beckons God's righteous response upon their unjust deaths to pour out 
his wrath upon their persecutors. God never turns a blind eye to injustice. He has not let the misdeeds of the unrighteous go unpunished. While the wicked may flourish for a time, without a seeming care in the world, their doom is certain. In verse 11, the departed souls of the righteous are seen wearing white robes and told to rest for a time until the number, the full number of the fellow servants and brothers is complete. And those of us who must suffer the same martyrdom that they were dealt in this life. Many have died at the hands of the wicked, holding fast firmly to the testimony of Jesus Christ, and there is yet more still to come until that great and final day of our Lord's return. But upon the breaking of the sixth seal, we come to what appears to be the final judgment upon earth, using familiar languages found in the prophets and the Gospels. Revelation here speaks of the natural phenomena of a great earthquake, the sun growing black, the moon red as blood, and the stars even falling from the sky. The sky itself vanishes, like a screen rolling up to unveil a window. The mountains and the islands, the high places and the low places of earth are all removed. Here is the beginning of the end, the ushering in of God's new heaven and new earth by which he will remove all corruption and start over again with a renewed creation. But the peak of man's terror is here displayed in the response from the cross-section of all of humanity, the high caste, the rulers and the military commanders and the wealthy, as well as the low caste, the slave and the poor, all seek to hide themselves in caves, under rocks, under the mountains, They scatter like a roach-infested room when the light is turned on, seeking a hiding place in every nook and cranny. They beg for the mountains to fall upon them to hide them. From what? They cannot bear to see the face of the one who sits on the throne or the wrath of the Lamb. For great is the wrath of God Almighty upon all who shake their fists at heaven, those who loathe his righteous rule and refuse to bow the knee in humble submission before him. Great will be the terror of the unrighteous, who will have nowhere to run or flee or hide themselves. There will be no escape from the unmitigated wrath of the Lamb. He will usher in his Father's judgment upon all those who refuse his reign. But great will be the consolation of the redeemed, those covered in the blood of the Lamb, the elect, those who are foreknown, who are chosen before the foundations of the world, who have been called, who believe, who repent, who have been justified and adopted and sanctified and will be glorified in the likeness of him who is the firstborn from among the dead, who opened up a new and living way by which we may enter the presence of a holy God. 
And so chapter 7 turns away from the message of God's wrath to his gracious and merciful redemption for all those who have been sealed by the Spirit of God. Now, it's my view that the 144,000 and the 12,000 of each of the 12 tribes of Israel are symbolic and not to be taken literally, whether it's the elect of the Israel or the church. But moving forward through verses 9 through 12, we are given a great vision of the host of heaven when the day of redemption is complete. John is privileged to see a great multitude that no one could number. Those from every nation on earth, every tribe, every people, and every language gathered before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white, crying out with praise to God for his salvation. The members of the redeemed are uncountable. Recall Yahweh's promise to Abraham that his descendants would outnumber the stars in the heavens and the sand on the seashore. God is not content with few, but with the many of the redeemed. The Lord wants the feast of the Lamb, the marriage supper of the Lamb, to be full of his guests. And the members of the redeemed will represent every people group on earth. Ever since the days of Noah and the Tower of Babel where the people and the languages were scattered, even to our day where the earth numbers in excess of seven billion people, we are still all one people in terms of being descendants of our first father Adam, and yet we are many ethnicities and cultures and languages. It's been estimated that the number of unique people groups are in excess of at least 10,000. And depending on how you count and divide up the people groups of the earth, some count as many as 17,000, even 24,000 or more. And it would appear from Scripture that God desires representatives from each of these unique people groups to be gathered around the throne room in heaven. The Lord Jesus in Matthew twenty four fourteen says, In this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Now it's my view that the Lord will not return until all the nations of the world have been reached. That each and every last people group has a viable church, a viable witness of evangelizing their own people. And to the best of our limited knowledge, there's at least 4,000, maybe 6,000 people groups left on earth who still need a sustainable witness. They need converts and leadership, and the scriptures translated into their mother tongue. Jesus gives us his commission in Matthew 28. Go, therefore... And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And so the task of the Great Commission remains until that goal is reached according to the will and the counsel of God. 
But here in this vision, the Lord assures us that we will complete that mission. That God will use his church and use his people to fulfill his purposes of redemption. John Piper reminds us that missions exist because worship does not. But that day will come when that mission is accomplished and we will all enter the joy of our master and worship him forever. The one who sits on the throne and the lamb. The worship we see in this vision, the worship given by men and angels and even the living creatures who are gathered around the throne room in heaven and the lamb who was worthy for with his blood he purchased men for God. He alone is worthy because he has fulfilled all righteousness. He has paid the ransom for our sin. He alone has quenched the wrath of God. The Lamb alone accomplished a mighty salvation. Many people today ask, well, salvation from what? One member in the church sent me a meme recently, a picture of Jesus standing at a door knocking, saying, let me in. And the person on the other side asks, why? To which Jesus replies, so I can save you. The person on the other side of the door says, well, from what? To which Jesus finally replies, from what I'm going to do to you if you don't let me in. The lamb who was slain is also the lamb who brings the wrath of God on sinners. The rich man who pays a poor man's debt is that man's savior in the human sense. A man who rescues a woman attacked by the wicked is her hero. Parents owe a great debt to one who delivers their child from a kidnapping or being sold into slavery. And all these acts of rescue are glorious in the human sense. But the rescue of God, who did not spare his own son, but freely offered him up for us, is the greatest rescue the world has ever known. It's the most awesome of all hero stories, the most glorious salvation, one that will be worthy of tribute and song and praise forever and ever throughout the future eons of timeless eternity, after a life on this earth is complete. And the Lord ushers in the eschaton when the righteous, when his righteous rule, rule be over a new heavens and a new earth. The vision of chapter 7 closes in verses 13 to 17 to offer great comfort. The promise of God's refuge for the righteous the wicked find no escape from his wrath. But the righteous find eternal comfort, peace, and acceptance with God dwelling in his house. When asked, who is this great throng of people, the elder answers John. They are the ones who have come out of the great tribulation. 
the rescued were dirty and abused, spit upon by the world, but now are washed and clothed in robes made white by the blood of the Lamb. And the righteous will stand in God's presence and before his throne. They will serve him day and night in his temple. Man will dwell again with God as God had originally intended. Many of you know our church supports the North Star Initiative, a local ministry that ministers to women who have been rescued from trafficking. They have a home up in Lidditz called the Harbor House that is able to house a dozen or so women. And the backgrounds of these women are awful. Their stories are almost unbelievable. These are women who have been traumatized and abused in unimaginable ways. But at the harbor, these women find refuge, safety, community, acceptance. There they get a warm bed and clean sheets, comforts we take for granted. They receive healthy meals, fresh clothing, and are surrounded every day by people who show them kindness and compassion, offer them hope from the Word of God, counseling and life skill coaching. These women rescued from the horrors of trafficking taste a little bit of heaven at the harbor house. In heaven, God's house of refuge, in verse 16, it says there will be no more hunger, no more thirst, no more exposure to the harsh elements of this life. Heaven is a place of abundant provision, a place of safety and joy, a world of love where evil will cease forever. But what makes heaven truly heaven is the presence of Jesus. As it reads in verse 17, for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Let us never be fooled that this is heaven. No matter how blessed you are, no matter how many good things in life you enjoy, they all pale in comparison to the glorious joys that await the redeemed in our Father's eternal kingdom. And yet, no matter how dreadful this life gets, with economic hardship, marital strife, alienation from a family member, persecution, an untimely death of a loved one, the loss of health, physical suffering, mental distress. Remember the words of Paul as he wrote to the saints in Rome, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let us pray. A great and gracious God and Father, we praise you and thank you for the biblical vision of hope that sin and wickedness will be dealt with once and for all and that the consolation of the righteous who trust in Christ is coming. Father, sustain us and encourage us by the message of your word and help us to walk as people of the light, people who live and walk with true and everlasting hope. We thank you, we bless you, and we glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.